Welcome back to the Get Unstuck and On Target podcast. I'm Mike O'Neill with Bench Builders, and we help growing companies, especially manufacturers, improve their people, process, and planning systems so they can scale smarter and faster. Joining me today from New York is Mark Hirschberg. Mark is the author of The Career Toolbook, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. Mark has spent his career launching and developing new ventures at startups and Fortune 500s and in academia. He helped start MIT's Career Success Accelerator, where he teaches annually. I don't typically list degrees, but Mark, the listing of MIT degrees here is just very, very impressive. And that is you have Bachelor of Science degrees in physics, electrical engineering, and computer science. And that was not enough. You've gone on, you got master's degrees in electrical engineering and computer science. Did I get that right? <laughs> you did. Welcome, Mark. Glad to have you um, on this podcast today. As we were talking before we hit the record button, there's so many things that we could talk about. And so we're going to take a little bit of a uh, across the board approach. And the first thing I'd like to kind of get your input on is your experience in starting and scaling companies. Tell us a little more about that experience. When I left MIT, I started out going to classic startups, dot-com era startups. And of course we left the, we left the dot-com era, but I've still been doing startups. Now I've been sometimes one of the first 10 people sometimes person number three or seven in those organizations, often coming in as an executive. Sometimes I've come in a little later. That might be as they've gotten their A round funding, or sometimes they've been around a while. And now they're a few years down the road. They still consider themselves a startup, although they're now making lots of money. And I get brought in when they've been stuck or have problems. I've done it as a full-time person. I've done it as a fractional CTO or fractional CPO, chief technology or chief product officer. And then I've helped those Fortune 500 companies who wanted to innovate, but they just didn't have the skills in-house. They needed my expertise and almost as some of them have said that DNA that I bring of that startup approach. Mark, it's interesting. You describe that you work with startups and sometimes those startups are doing very, very well, but they get stuck. What have you found is the most common ways in which startups get stuck? There are two common problems I see over and over. One of those is what worked to get them here doesn't work going forward. Hmm. Now, if you think about your company, when you're tiny, when you're starting, that first sales call, it's all hands on deck. It's everyone says, okay, show up. And, oh, the client asked for this. Can we do that? I don't know. Okay, let's try and make that happen. And it's chaotic. And that's fine for the first couple of calls. but that doesn't scale. The way you get your first 10 customers is different from how you need to get your next 90, which is different from the process needed for the next 900. And people do get that with your sales team. You say, oh, I can't do all the sales. I'm going to hire up a sales team. And you start building the marketing collateral. That's great. But it turns out a lot of internal processes also don't scale. What works when you're a team of three engineers does not work when you're a team of 23 engineers that doesn't work for a team of 53 engineers and your marketing team and your product team and your finance team. So what happens is you have all these processes and you know they work because you've been successful. That's how you got here. Why mess with success? 
but your challenges going forward will be different. And so what often happens is this all worked. And then about 12, 18 months ago, things weren't working well. And you're not quite sure why, because you didn't change things, but the environment in which you operate, the challenges you faced have changed and you didn't update your processes. Mm. You know, it's interesting you say that, and that is processes. It's not very um, exciting to talk about processes, but in terms of what those could be, it could be the whole gamut of processes. You mentioned about the size of the teams. Have you found that when an organization gets to a certain size, in this case I'm talking about employee size versus revenue, have you found that there's certain critical points that organizations kind of hit that oftentimes lead to potential problems? 100%. Let me give you an example from engineering, from my field, although I've seen this elsewhere. When I have four or five engineers, you stick them all in a room together or stick them in the same place and someone has a question, so she turns around her chair and says, hey, what about this? And someone else, oh, here's how you do it. And that's great. You don't need a lot of structure and meetings and overhead. When you have a dozen engineers and she turns around in her chair and says, hey, I'm stuck, she's talking to the people right next to her. But someone else on the other side of the room or in a different set of cubicles doesn't hear that. And she didn't think, oh, I don't want to get up and walk over. But that other person should have been in the conversation. So at that stage, you hit your first inflection point. The process you need, the way people need to engage, has to be different. And the first inflection point for engineering hits somewhere around 8 to 10 people. Mm. You can't just have anyone can do anything. They start to be a little more formal. And then you hit another inflection point somewhere around 20 to 25 people, another one around 50. And then you start getting into the rule of three, which says rule of three, this is a process management, people management tool that says five, 15, 50, 150, 500, 1500, 5,000, basically tripling each time. That's what your organization needs to change. Now the rule of three is a good rule of thumb in fact, if you look at militaries, they're often organized around that concept. But of course, for any individual group, you have to look at, do these people interact a lot versus they're independent? A sales team of 20 people, you can manage that because they're all independent. They're all working different territories. You just need one manager. 20 people on an engineering team, it's hard to have one director managing 20 people because they're not all independent. So it's the nature of how the team interacts with itself it's also the external inputs. Do you have a lot of people from other departments coming in, asking questions, needing help from this team that you need to coordinate? So rule of three is a good start, but then you have to look specifically at the processes and flow and dynamics of the team to know, is it really at 15 or is it closer to 10 or closer to 20? Mark, you are uniquely positioned to talk about startups and I, really appreciate your explanation of the rule of three. Let me contrast startups with Fortune 500 sized organizations. What might be examples why a large Fortune 500 company needs to bring in Mark Hirschberg? The companies are optimized for different things. So let me give you an example. I consulted to a very big Fortune 500 company that would get sued according to our legal department every single day. Every day there was a lawsuit filed against them. Now, if you're a startup, that's unfathomable. You don't get any lawsuit, hopefully ever, not for years. If you're a big corporation, 
Think of a company the size of Amazon or Walmart. They're getting sued probably multiple times a day. And that's everything from workers comp and slip and fall. I'm sure there's some harassment, there's product defects, just little things. These aren't big lawsuits, but they get sued all the time. And they have this big legal department that says, hey, you know what? If we are mopping floors and not putting up the sign saying wet floor, this one lawsuit, we could see this happen 10 times a day. We have to put in some process to worry about it. At a startup company, you want to sue me? Fine. What's going to happen? You're not going to get anything because I'm going to waste my little bit of capital on lawyers. Then you win and I go bankrupt. We don't worry about getting sued. We shouldn't. The big company, they should. So you have different needs, different priorities. And so this is my version of the innovator's dilemma. If you've read that book by Clayton Christensen, it says big companies are looking at problems and challenges that are worth hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, not opportunities and challenges worth millions or tens of millions. But the same thing has to do with your risk, with your processes. You're not focused on these smaller things, or you have something that's focused on, hey, we have to make sure we've avoided every $50,000 lawsuit because we'll get them 10 times a day. And at our scale, that's a lot. So they are oriented to a different set of problems than what they need to do as a startup where we say, let's build a new brand. And you know what? If our brand is terrible, we'll change the name. If you're Disney, if you're IBM, you can't change your name. Your brand is worth billions. I can change the name of my startup all the time. So they don't have the mentality that when we launch this new brand, hey, we can try it out. If it's bad, we'll change it. In fact, a place like Disney has an army of people protecting that brand. And so their processes are well set up for what they have, but not well set up for that rapid innovation. You know, as I'm listening to you very well explain what I think is relatively complex, and that is you strike me as being almost equally adept at startups as Fortune 500s, but you clearly differentiated what might bring you in. And that's very helpful uh, to know. You know, one of the things I wanted to get into is because you've gone into both size organizations and you, in your assessment, are looking at talent and you're looking at what's available. And before we hit record button, we, we did this in our pre-interview, we were talking about this notion of upskilling. And that's a term that you know HR folks might just kind of just rattle off and people may or may not know what that means. When I use the term upskilling or when you use that term, what does that mean to you? We have employees with certain capabilities and we want to improve those capabilities. Now, in particular, we often focus on, oh, we're gonna train you how to use Excel macros so you can make better Excel spreadsheets. And yes, very useful or you're a software engineer, learn a new language, you're in finance, learn a new accounting tool. Fantastic, do that, because you're gonna be using new accounting tools. But then there are some universal skills, communication, leadership, team building, negotiating. And those in particular tend to give you a better ROI for the amount of time invested in them. And those are the skills we really wanna see. And those are the easier ones to scale because teaching people that new accounting system well, that applies to your five people in finance, but not the other 95 people in your company. But better communication skills, that's going to apply to everyone. 
So if you can invest in these and there's ways to do it at little or no cost, you're going to get a much bigger return. If you were to compare upskilling from a small startup to a Fortune 500 company, is the process of assessing that, is it the same or do you find it's different? I think it's exactly the same. Now, the assessment tools you might use, how you assess 2,000 people at once, it might be different at a big company than a small one. But I'll say to the assessment specifically, it's hard to assess these skills. I can assess how well you understand chemistry. I can give you a chemistry test and see how many questions you answer correctly. How well you network, how well you lead. There's no simple type of formula I can test you on. There's no fill out this form, fill in the Scantron and I'll tabulate the results. I have to see it and feel it. And so that part for the assessment is harder, but the teaching, because it's best taught in small units, that can scale whether you're a small company or a large company. Now, for those who are watching on YouTube, they saw me smile because here you are with physics degrees, electrical engineering degrees, computer science degrees, and you're talking about the type of thing that kind of falls into my bailiwick. You, you said that technical training, yes, it is important, but the biggest return on the investment are these other things. You mentioned communication skills, the people skills side um, of, of that. Upskilling, organizations. We're recording this in early August. It will probably be more around October. It's hard to know exactly where the economy will be at that point, but right now there's assumption is that we may be moving into some form of a recession, an economic downturn, if you will. You consult with small and large companies. What do you advise them when things get tight? I always hear that the first thing to go is training. Do you see that in, in your work as well? A hundred percent. People throw out training. They throw out investment in people. And now think about the following. What is your biggest cost? And what is your biggest driver of revenue? Now, it may be if you're a manufacturing company and everything is turnkey and you just need high quality metal or chemicals or whatever goes in, and you can get anyone to pull the switch and have your machines produce things. Okay, that person is just a human cog in the machine and fine, you can find another cog. If you have people adding value different ways on my teams, we do software engineering, it is all about the people. They are the ones that are driving our value. I optimize for them. In fact, I always say, I don't care if our code necessarily runs less efficiently because I can throw more CPUs at. I'll gladly pay a higher bill at Amazon for my servers if it means my people are being more efficient in the work they do because they are driving value. And so it's like making dinner. What's the most important part of the dinner? It's your ingredients. Poor ingredients, poor dinner. Good ingredients, good dinner. Your people are probably one of the key ingredients to your value to the returns you're giving your shareholders, that's what you want to invest in. 
Yet again, I'm smiling. I'm more like a Cheshire cat. I'm smiling from uh, ear to ear because that's obviously the, uh, the bias of myself uh, and the Bench Builders team. You know, as we've been kind of talking about small startups and Fortune 500s, I, I kind of left out what probably accounts for the vast majority of businesses. They're not necessary startups, but they've not achieved Fortune 500 status. That is probably the company that um, I most typically enjoy working with most. Why? I'm working with the decision makers and they can see impact. They can see how what is it we're working on together immediately has impact and it can be driven down to the bottom line. My bias is most businesses fit in that small to mid-sized category. But why does that group get oftentimes overlooked? I'm with you in that they are the most fun company to work for. And why I like it, startups early on, you don't have resources. We don't yet have customers. Oh, $1,000, that's a lot of money. Can we spend it? At a big company, I can spend the $1,000, but I have to fill out seven forms to do so. It's a mid-sized company where they can say, hey, let's invest five, $10,000 in this and we can see the impact and I can physically see it because I can walk into the office and see what's happening as opposed to, well, that's in a different office in a different country. But I think when you look at, for a lot of enterprise sales, when we look at the returns, it's really a power law. If you talk, for example, to the cloud providers, to Amazon and Microsoft and IBM, the one saying we sell cloud services, it is a tiny handful of their companies that are driving most of their cloud revenue. Hmm. There's a small number of them who are giving them literally millions of dollars a year. And they look at a startup or an SMB and they say, oh yeah, you're paying us 30,000 a year. The only reason they care is because any of those small companies or SMBs can one day turn into that large enterprise and be the key customer but really they recognize the bulk of the revenue for that comes from a handful of large enterprise customers. I suspect that's the same thing when you look at other services and products. And that's why we see a lot of targeting to the enterprise and SMB is once they've attacked the enterprise, they say, well, I guess we need to go down market if we want to expand our revenue base. Hmm. Since I said that we would talk about it, we most definitely could spend the entire podcast on the career toolbook and for those who are not familiar with it i love the way you kind of lay it out as one might would expect it's very logical you're talking about the power of threes there's three main sections career leadership management and interpersonal dynamics and even within each of those you use that same power of three in terms of the categories people who order the career toolbook, what's prompting them to do so? They're recognizing that any of these skills, and we've talked about some networking, negotiating leadership, if you just get a little bit better at any of these skills, you're going to have a massive ROI. And let me just give a quick illustration. Imagine you're an employee and you are taking a job offer, they give you $80,000, well, instead of taking it, you've learned to negotiate. So you negotiate for 81,000. That's not a big lift. We can imagine doing it. If you get after five, 10 minutes of negotiating, $1,000 more, 
and stay in that job for the rest of your career, with five or 10 minutes of work, you just got yourself $1,000 for the next 35 years. $35,000 in 10 minutes. That's incredible. But of course, you're not going to stay in that job. You're going to have raises and promotions, and you'll negotiate for more than $1,000. If you get a little bit better at negotiating, we're not talking about being the world's best, it's a little bit better, you can add tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars to your lifetime earnings. Imagine if everyone on your sales team, on your procurement team, got just a little bit better, got one or 2% better in every deal they did, what would that do to your bottom line? Now, of course, we know negotiating is not just about salary and sales. We negotiate all the time with our peers, with our coworkers. If every outcome of your discussions got one or 2% better, what would that do to your company? And now I use negotiating as an example because we can do the math. But the same is true for leadership, for communication. It's not that someone says, here's $1,000 more, but your outcomes get a little bit better. And so imagine if everyone in your organization or even just yourself for your own career got a little bit better, the return will be massive. It's like compound interest. And so people buy the book because they say there's all these skills. I know what they are. We know networking's important. I've heard about it for years, but no one's ever taught me how to do it, how to get better. So putting in that little investment has a huge return for the readers. Mark, it seems as if we've had recent guests, this theme keeps coming up and that is there's so much horrific that goes along with the pandemic but there has been some things that you step back and you look at it and what has it done and it seems as if it's given many people the opportunity to to reflect to kind of assess and begin making decisions it's been commonly referred to as the mass resignation by which people just kind of say look i'm out of here I want to move beyond it, and that is if we have listeners who are stepping back and saying, you know what, I may not have 25 years to compound that $1,000 that I got in more salary, but I want to use the time I have left most effectively. And it could very well be at different points in your career or at different levels of the organization. How could someone who is, say, mid-career benefit by your book these skills by the way apply at any stage if you're not 30 but 55 even still getting that thousand dollars more gives you more compounding works just not for as long mm -hmm. now the same thing goes for our career plans it's great if you are 25 and really understand where you want to go and create the plan to get there instead of maybe bouncing around and wasting time. But even if you are 50 or 55, and certainly in your 30s and 40s, figuring out where you want to go and creating a plan to get there, because we all know at work, anytime we have a goal, we have this big project we have to do in the next two years, we actually create a plan and see how we do against the plan and adjust. We don't just cross our fingers and hope. But with our careers, we do that. Say, well, I hope to get that promotion in a few years. I hope to get to that level. I'm not going to create a plan. That doesn't work. So we want to apply some of the same techniques. And to your point, people are finally stepping back and saying, what is it I want? Now, here's the key thing. There's a bunch of questions that I give people to start thinking about this. And they're free on the website, which we'll give you a little later in the show. It's not just about your job. 
yes, ask questions like how many hours do I want to be in the office? Do I want to manage people or be an individual contributor? Ask those questions, but also ask about your life. How much flexibility do you want? Do you want to be able to take off in the afternoon to go see your child's play in school, which I was fortunate that my dad was able to do that. Those things matter too. So ask questions about your life and then make sure your job and career fit into the life that you want instead of trying to fit your life around the job that you have. You know, I hear very often that people feel stuck from a career standpoint. Um, in my conversations with friends, I hear that as a kind of recurring theme. So I could see if a person feels somewhat stuck career-wise, how the career toolbook could be helpful to them. You know, Mark, as you kind of look back on your experiences thus far, working with individuals, working with teams, working with companies of all different sizes, working in academia, helping those at MIT get off to a good strong start with the uh, Career Success Accelerator. As you kind of reflect on those experiences thus far, can you think of an example by which either you or someone that you're working with got stuck? And if so, what did it take to get unstuck? I have seen so many people get stuck in their careers. In fact, the opening few lines of my book are examples of people I saw I worked with who wanted to get somewhere. Someone who says, I want to be a director, but that's it. They, they want to be a director and they don't know how to get there. And for years, their career languishes. I've seen some people who get sidelined into a certain type of project or industry or role. It's not really where they want to be, but each step the boss says, well, look, we just need you on this for another year or really need you on this project. And then they look back eight years later and they say, wow, where did that time go? And it's because people don't have that proactive plan. The analogy I use in the book, imagine you're sitting in a small boat in the middle of the ocean. There are currents moving you around. And if you do nothing, the currents are going to direct you somewhere. Mm. It may be where you want to end up. It may not be. So your best bet for getting where you want to go is to know where you want to go and then proactively create a plan. Now that might be rolling, growing, or sailing, or turning on the engine. And sometimes those currents will help you and they'll take you there faster. Sometimes they're gonna work against you. And what happens in life is we have currents and it could be the boss who's blocking our promotion or trying to help us get promoted. It could be your division just got shut down or there's a global pandemic that threw everything into chaos. And so that project that was supposed to happen in 2020 completely got shelved. You never know what can happen, but you can't just sit back and wait for the currents to take you there. You have to have a plan and you have to be proactive. And it begins, if you don't know where you want to go, it begins by exploring and talking to people to understand where you would be happier than where you are now, and then creating that plan to get there. What I love about what you just described is the context was uh, individual context. And that is recognizing the currents. They're gonna take you somewhere. You just gotta decide what you're gonna do about it. I can see how you in working with your clients apply the same thing when it comes to their planning and that is don't leave it to chance be intentional that's exactly right we think about our project plans we don't just say well i think if we do this it's going to work 
we say, wait a second, what if this is twice as hard as we think it is? What if that vendor who's promised to deliver by the 30th, what happens if they don't? Do we have a backup plan? And you'll think about these things and then you'll adjust when things happen. The same thing applies to our career plans. As you well know, this is not a scripted conversation, but I'm kind of looking at your degrees and reflecting on what you are doing now and how you help clients. Which of those degrees do you find yourself tapping into most often? No question, the physics degree. Mm. Even though I work in software, so you'd think the electrical engineering and pure science degrees are relevant, and sure, I use some of that. But what physics taught me is how to frame and solve problems. And really when it comes down to it, we think of framing and solving problems within our discipline. Certainly within engineering, I need to do this. How do I do it using the rules and constraints I have? If you're in finance, well, we need to get this type of cash flow. How do we do that? But there are a bunch of problems that are a lot harder which is I need to get my team to do this, to behave a certain way, to engage, to deliver this work. And boy, they're not working well together. They're fighting, there's poor communications. So that's the goal. But now I have to frame the problem the right way to apply the right approaches. So just like in physics, we say, how do we model it? And then what are the formulas we use to solve it? The same thing's true here, but it's not as easy to recognize how to define the problem and which approach. One thing I love about the people side is any rule, there's an exception somewhere. You can always come up with an example where that's not the right thing to do. And so it's a lot more subtle and I think a lot more challenging. I couldn't agree with you more. And that is uh, when I was working in a corporate HR standpoint, you know, just when you think you've seen it all, something else uh, happens and, and people are not as predictable as one might would would think. I'm really intrigued by your response and that is you tap into your physics background. I'm sitting listening to you and how easy you are uh, in describing not technical matters but these non-technical matters. Actually those matters that can be much more derailing. You're talking about communication, you're talking about teamwork, you're talking about having uh, a plan and in, in purpose. Um, uh, you have a great ability just to kind of take that and just put it in a, a way that's very easy to understand. You know, Mark, we've talked about a pretty wide variety of things in this conversation. As you kind of look back on what we've discussed, what do you want to make sure our viewers and listeners have as takeaways? I'd say a few different things. One of the most common ways organizations get stuck is what's been working for them to date no longer works in the new environment in which they're operating. It might be because they're scaling up or the industry has changed or something about their organization. They went from all sitting together to now being distributed. So recognize that when there are external changes, you might need to review your operating practices and adjust to the needs you have today not what worked yesterday. When it comes to upskilling, small improvements in these skills can have a huge return. Don't get daunted. Don't say, well, I'm never going to be a great leader. That's okay. If you're just a slightly better leader tomorrow than you are today, 
you will have a huge benefit. And if you can do this for your whole organization, the return is massive. And there are very easy, no cost ways to do this within your organization. And then when it comes to the third piece, to thinking about some of the bigger challenges, really, if you can frame the problem correctly, you're halfway there to solving. So many people are looking at the wrong problem. Mm. They're looking at the wrong way. And if you look at the problem the wrong way, you pick up a bunch of incorrect solutions. If you think that screw is a nail, you're gonna start hammering it. If you recognize it as a screw, you're gonna get the right tool, the screwdriver, and it's so much easier. So knowing how to identify and frame the problem is really key. Mark, I'm confident that folks listening to this will want to learn more. What's the best way for people to learn more about you and what is it you do? You can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. That's where you're gonna learn about the book part of it and the upskilling. If you want the other side of me, the consultant side, you can look at my LinkedIn, which is linked from my website. So if you go to thecareertoolkitbook.com, you can see where to buy the book. You can get in touch with me. You can follow me on social media or from the contact page, go to my LinkedIn page. You can find other free resources throughout my website. Other than the book, I give everything away for free. There's a free companion app, but you don't even have to buy the book. That has a lot of the key points from the book. I put out new content every week. And there's a resources page with a bunch of free downloads, including the career plan questions we talked about, including questions to ask during the interview process, how to think about things both as a hiring manager and as a candidate. The very first download is a free guide for how to create an upskilling program across your organization, completely free. You don't have to buy anything. You can just download it. I don't even gate it by asking for your email. Take it and improve your whole organization. So all of this is available at thecareertoolkit.com. I've spent time on that website. It's an excellent website. It's easy to navigate and the resources that are available for download is uh, very, very impressive, as you are uh, as well. Mark, thank you for spending time uh, with me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the show. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. We upload the latest episode every Thursday to all the major platforms, including Apple and Spotify. So if you've enjoyed this episode with Mark, please subscribe. I've got a question for our listeners. Are you trying to grow your business and you want to make sure that you've got the right people, process, and planning systems in place to grow smoothly? If yes, let's talk. Head to unstuck.show to schedule a quick non-sales call. We'll talk about your growth goals and explore practical steps that you can take immediately to grow your business. So I want to thank you for joining us. And I hope you have picked up on some tips from Mark that will help you get unstuck and on target. Until next time.